Okay. Um, so last week was amazing, this past week for Nolene and me. My lovely wife organized, um, in advance, thinking ahead, a, a little breakaway for us on my birthday. So that was amazing, spending the week in Plettenberg Bay. And, um, you know, I'm so impressed with the, with the Beacon Island Hotel where we stayed, where we've got sort of holiday points, um, that on the, on Friday they have, they open up the hotel to informal, uh, traders. So they set up their stands in the foyer outside. And, um, it's obviously a good captive market in a sense. People who go there. And that's where I got my shirt. Okay. So, I mean, um, but I also um, realized and I remembered that the priests in the Old Testament had tassels, you know, on one of their garments. It was a little bit lower than this, so, I mean, it's fitting not so that the guy who preaches should wear you know, a tasseled shirt, so, amen. This is it. So your priest is before you this morning, um, and I'm actually going to talk about Aaron this morning, so it's quite fitting. But amen. Who do you support in the World Cup? No one, okay. That's best to support no one because then you won't be disappointed. Whichever team I support get knocked, gets knocked out, so it doesn't work. Germany. Ooh, they're struggling. Brazil. Alexis backs the winners. I mean, Brazil, they have a good chance. Yeah. No, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Any others? I always, I back Germany typically and England. Um, I don't know why England, because it's like our cricket team. They never actually get anywhere, but amen. They promise much, but they get bombed out, but amen. You know, have you seen the fans, though? Have you watched any of it, just how how totally excited they are? They dress up in the colors of their you know, the team. Um, they are fired up. You know, they are so emotionally engaged. And it's a picture of complete unity. You know, as long as the team's doing well, you know, these guys are united and they're cheering them on. And just the celebration when a goal is scored. Um, the, to me, the victory of, you know, Japan over, who did, who did Japan beat? I forgot. Germany, exactly. It was my team. Yeah, they beat. And, but those Japanese fans were just amazing. And even the commentators pointed out, what? You know, this is taking support for their team to, you know, to new heights. It was incredible. The way they were dressed up, and afterwards they even cleaned up the stadium in bags. They were like, what? You know, it's, so, you know, it's an amazing picture of, of, of unity that we see at the World Cup at the moment. You know, unity behind your team. But that unity lasts only as long as the team is doing well. You know, because sports fans are pretty fickle. Um, I, I know, I tend to be fickle as well, I must say, without teams. Um, you know, they support their team as long as their team is doing well, as long as they're successful, however they define success. But as soon as their team struggles or loses, you know, most people, not all of them, they then criticize. Ah, oh, the selection, it's the coach, you know, it's the referee, yeah? And then they typically go back home, I think, anything but united, just like critical. And that is the nature of, you know, secular or worldly unity. But there's a unity that we as Christians are called to that is very, very different. There we go. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk today about the blessing of, of unity. Um, God values unity greatly. In fact, it's, the heart, it's at the heart of his mission, if you think about it. God's mission is to gather the nations. You know, people from all backgrounds, 
tribes, culture, language, geographies. He's gathering the nations in a family that he has created for himself. He's adopted us into his family. And the picture of this family is a family that's devoted to one another and that is completely united. When the family does well in God's kingdom, the people are united. When the, even when the family is not doing so well, God's unity is we, are st- we remain devoted to one another. We stay united. We are not like soccer fans, right, in Christ. Um, that's God's desire for us, to live in peace with one another, to be in perfect harmony. You know, throughout the Bible we read about this. Uh, but sadly, throughout the Bible, God's people did not live up to this calling very well. You know, the tribes of Israel divided you know, very soon after you know, Solomon, David and Solomon. They divided into north and south. And even within the, those groupings in the northern kingdom, the tribes distrusted each other. They went to war occasionally. Um, they even set up their separate temple. I mean, you can imagine God, what? You know, my people are now even worshipping at different temples. Um, and into, into the, you know, the New Testament, we see the letters of, of Paul and the other apostles. They addressed unity all the time. The early church within a generation, it seems like, they were finding ways to be divided. You know? And Paul, in all of his letters, there was some issue going on in the church. But Paul specifically addressed, he knew the people well, he knew the situation. And his teaching to the churches was very customized depending on what, the, what was causing the, the division or the disunity. Um, but Paul took it seriously. All of his letters, he addresses you know, the, the divisions and the problems that arose. Never did he tell his people, why don't you just divide? Why don't you just go to that family group, go to that church, you go to that one. He never said that. Why? Because in Christ we are united. God has created the unity, and we'll read today about how, how we are to maintain the unity that God has created for us. We don't, we don't create the unity. It's something, it's just a blessing. It's a blessing from God. Um, you know, there was always a, a realization, though, throughout the, the Bible, in the psalmists, in the prophets, that, that, they, that they missed the unity that God had created, and they lamented about the lack of unity at times. The psalmists wrote, and often the psalms of ascent, and we're going to look at them now, it was, it was remembering you know, the goodness of God and the unity that God had created them to be in. So I'm going to, um, we're, um, we're going to show, we're going to cover between Aline and I a few scriptures today. This is the only one I'm going to put up though, okay? Um, psalm 133, this is, it's a song of ascent. Uh, David, King David wrote it. I just want to make sure I've got that translation, okay. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Um, You know, I've I've typically read this and and I've stopped kind of at verse 2 then. I thought, what's so pleasant about oil running down your beard? It's almost like having a piece of that McDonald's burger stuck in your beard afterwards, (laughs) if you've got a big beard. But you know, this is a different culture, and this is anointing oil. And uh, this is not just your, you know, cooking oil. This is special anointed anointing oil. And Aaron was, you know, the first high priest appointed in Israel. God had just created, you know, established. Uh, 
his, his family, Israel. And Aaron was, was anointed. So this is a reference. You, know, you can imagine Aaron with his beard and long hair, you know, copious amounts of oil being poured on his head and down his, his robe onto his tassels, right? Down, down there. Okay. So you know, this is a picture, but this is a picture of unity. Why? And what's, doesn't sound like fun to me. Now, but, but remember the, the, the role of a priest and Aaron set up, you know, a priesthood. The role of a priest was to connect people with God, to mediate between people and God. Unity. Okay? That, it allowed us to be united with God and the role of a priest was to teach God's people, God's ways and to role model God. You know, to be a, some kind of representation, not a perfect one, but a representation of God. And he would, um, he would counsel, he would teach, um, I guess what we would call disciple. Uh, and he would, a, a, a reason for that was to, to create this family that God desired them to be. It was unity. The priest, the priest was about establishing unity between God's people and God. And because of that unity for them to be a completely united family. Okay, so this is a picture of, of the unity, the, 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 the way to being completely united that Israel needed and they didn't have before. God's representative bringing God's people together and bringing God's people to him. Okay, and then uh, you know, David goes on and says, um, it is as if the dew of, of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now this is weird because if you look at a map, Mount Hermon is in the northern part of Israel. Okay, Zion, which is Jerusalem, and a specific reference to the temple at Jerusalem, is 300 kilometers further south. I mean, how can the dew of Hermon fall on Mount Zion? Now, the southern part of Israel is very dry and arid. Don't get much dew, I guess only at certain times of the year. But in the north, um, this, this mountain, it's a very, very high mountain. Um, if I remember correctly, about 3,000 meters high, the elevation. Um, in fact, I have a picture of it, a painting of it. I just added it this morning. Right. Okay, and there is, yeah, there is snow on the tops of the mountain almost throughout the year, and it gets copious amounts of dew. Apparently, it is quite unusual, just the way it faces and the distance from the sea, and the temperature changes. Um, I, don't, I haven't done the, you know, I haven't studied this out properly, but you can't imagine any region of the world getting more dew than they get here. And the dew and the rain they get and the melting snow, you can see all the, you know, the little valleys and stuff. They flow down and these are actually the headwaters of the Jordan River. This is the source of the Jordan River. The Jordan River then flows 300 kilometers to the south. Okay, into Judah. And brings refreshment to this arid land. And he says that, you know, this is a picture of, of unity. You know, that something happens so far away. You know, God uses that though. To bring blessing to his people elsewhere. Kind of a connection. And there's a, a movement of from the top to the bottom here, you know, from Aaron's head down to his, you know, cloak, you know, from the top where Mount Hermon is to Mount Zion. All these connections. And, you know, during the Bible, depending on which passage you read, it's related to God's abundance, God's provision, God's spirit even. And in this passage, the dew represents unity. And, you know, David in this, you know, a psalm that is written and that they're going to sing, he is saying that unity is like 
this view. And it brings God's blessings. God bestows his blessing. So unity is a blessing of God, and the blessing is very specific. It is life, and everlasting life. Okay, so there's a lot more theologically to this unity that we talk about, okay, than being like the soccer fans of Japan. I know you guys know this, right, but it's a good reminder that this unity is something very special, and hence it is something to be protected and maintained at all costs. Um, unity brings God's blessings and it brings life. And this is a song of ascents. Now, um, you know, at, you know, during certain festivals in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish people, you know, from the different tribes, um, I guess they still had the choice whether to go to Jerusalem. Or anyway, Jewish people from all over Judah and I assume the northern kingdom would travel in groups, families typically, close families, extended families, and on the way to the festival, they would sing. And this is one of the songs they would sing. You know, they were celebrating the the unity that they had. They were celebrating God's provision through the priesthood that allowed them to connect with God and connect with each other. Now, they were celebrating God's provision and his connection between north and south. Um, And by the time they got to the church service at the temple, they were fired up. Now they were singing, they were ready, they understood God's blessings, they were joyful, they were united. And I think, imagine each of us, when we came to church in the morning, sang like this. You know, how would we, would we be late, would we be early? Um, how, imagine a group from this little family walking up the steps, how do you think they would respond to us, how do you think we would respond to them? There would be a light, almost. It would be like, whoa, this guy, this family's got presence. Look how, look how excited they are to be at church. You know, they understand God's provision. They're grateful. They understand the unity that God has given them. How amazing would that be if each of us has this little picture in our minds when we wake up on Sunday morning? That we're singing at home long before we, we come to church and sing. Now we come up the steps singing. You're allowed to do that, okay? You're allowed to attend church singing when you come in the door. Let's do it next week. Let's sing, okay? That we don't just start singing with the song leaders. And we do it because we're grateful to God, His blessing of unity. Amen. So, um, you know, Jesus spoke a lot about unity as well, and especially in John 17. Um, So unity is important to God, and obviously unity is important to Jesus. Um, You know, if you just look at how he, you know, he walked with his disciples and he he trained them, he discipled them, and how he encouraged them to become like him. Um, Just this close family they had, the way they, they hung out, the meals they had, the tough teachings they had certainly, but how they walked together. You know, they did so much together. God, Jesus was creating a united team. And when the Spirit came and really empowered them to live at that, as that united team, we see in the book of Acts just how the gospel exploded. You know, these guys understood unity. They put the interests of others before their own. When times were tough, they stayed focused. Okay, so let's read um, in John 17. So I did, as I said, I don't have 
the scripture up there. John 17 from verse 20. Now this is at the uh, the Passover meal, the, the Last Supper as we call it, just before Jesus was arrested. And he's praying, and obviously the disciples hear him praying. He's praying aloud, okay? Otherwise John wouldn't have written this down. So he's praying with them. He's praying for them. And doesn't that alone bring unity? When we pray for each other in community. Okay. And this particular part of the prayer, which is towards the end of his prayer, and therefore I assume it's almost the last words that he, he says and prays. You know, this is three chapters worth of God. You know, Jesus is praying. He says this, John 17 from verse 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. I always find this interesting that Jesus repeats this. He says the same thing twice. He changes the words a little bit. Now, when Jesus repeats something, you, he, he really wants them to remember this, right? And, um, you know, he prays that his disciples back then and us nowadays will be completely united, perfectly one, as Jesus the Father and the Spirit were united and perfectly one. Wow. Imagine that. I mean, can you imagine? And I know it's difficult to understand the Trinity. I certainly haven't got my head around it. But if you imagine the three of them, the God, the Father, and the Spirit, Sorry, God, the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit together. Um, what would the sense be? You know, in that, how did, how did they interact? How did they relate? What did they do? What did they talk about? How did they speak to one another? It's like, it's, man, you know, it would be awesome to be part of that. And here's the thing: we are part of that. Now, in Christ, we are part of that family. You know, that God has the, the family that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, through the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are brought into that family, into that complete unity. Created by God. Um, and then, you know, he says, and this is the why of unity. And yeah, unity brings blessings, unity brings joy. Um, I love being in a team, a group of people that are united and of one purpose. It's a wonderful feeling. And if you're in a, a business, you know, and I pray that those who are entering, you know, the, the career sort of entering their careers, the job world, the world of career, that you find yourself in a team that is is a united, amazing team. They are rare. Okay, most of you would agree with me. But for a while, I was actually part of a team like that. I've shared this before at CSR, and that's why I was sad to to leave because I was leaving friends, and it was a diverse team, and we'd been through a lot together. Um, it was amazing how quickly I went from being the young Turk, you know, the guy who caused all the problems, you know, a question this, to suddenly I was like the old, uh, the old dude, you know, towards the end. But it was so wonderful that I accepted my, how my role changed, and it was, it was just amazing to be part of a team. But what's far, far more amazing is when I became a disciple of Jesus and I learned about God's family and the unity, you know, that, that we had. Unity that we have in Christ. 
Okay, we have it. Whether we decide to take it and embrace it or not, another story. It's just an amazing feeling to be just united. Um, and with the reason, he says, he prays that his disciples will be perfectly united. Why? So that the world will know the truth about him. So as much as, sorry, I'm, what I was saying, as much as it's wonderful for us and it gives us joy and satisfaction and warm feelings and mm, it's awesome being together and doing things together as a united team. But it's not only about us. In fact, it is less about us than it is about our witness for Jesus. And if we really get that, then, you know, it goes beyond feelings. You know, we're not, you know, I'm not united anymore without, you know, something's going on and I'm not happy about that. No. You know, we, we are united and God's created the, this united family as a witness to the world, which is so divided, you know, and it is so, so broken in terms of relationship. Do we do it perfectly? No. We mature in unity, which I'm going to get to just now. But we must understand that there is lot, a lot more to unity in God's family than how we feel. Right, it's part of our witness. And in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says something similar. I'm sure I've preached this 20 times, but some things are just so important. There he says, you know, love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. All men will know who I am through the fact that you are following me and you are becoming like me. So the love and unity that, that we have in God's family is actually our most important witness. Okay. And when we do not love one another as Jesus loved, and we do not embrace and live out the unity that we have in Christ, we are not presenting an accurate picture of Jesus to the world. So unity is a high priority for, for God, and therefore it was a high priority for, for Jesus. Um, you know, Paul, as I said, addressed unity in his different letters. Uh, but Nolene's going to come up and share some lessons from uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Right, then I'll come back. Hey, guys. Yeah, I think it's always helpful when we um, actually look at real-life situations, you know, because sometimes it just remains theory that we um, kind of, yeah, like to, to ponder. But looking at... Neil, you took my notes. <laughs> Left his notes, took mine. They're your notes. <laughs> I never make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it really hit me as I was reading Philippians um, in different versions to prepare for, for this, um, which, by the way, Neil only asked me yesterday whether I would. So I had to go for a run first to tell him whether the Lord actually was letting me, was giving me anything to say today. This is how, this is how he rolls, you know. So, you know, he keeps me on my toes. But I think as I was reading it, it really hit me what Neil was saying and what Vilma said this morning about the gospel is that for Paul, and obviously he'd learned this from Jesus, unity was always about the gospel, about getting the gospel out, you know. And when you start reading his letters with that in mind, you start seeing how this comes out just so strongly over and over again. So obviously, you know, I'm going to encourage you guys to go back and go and pour into Philippians and see what comes out there. 
Um, you know, one of the things, firstly, that you will kind of notice when you start reading it, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses for you to get a feel for, for how Paul felt about these guys. Um, you know, Paul had, on his second missionary journey, he had actually, um, I don't know if you remember in Acts, where you, I'm sure you'll remember, he had this dream where this man, you know, he couldn't go into Bithynia, which was actually north of Asia, he, for, there was something that was hindering them there. And then he had this dream and it was this man from Macedonia who was saying, please come on over, you know. And for Paul, that was a sign that this area in Europe was ripe for the gospel. And so, of course, in obedience, he went. And um, man, it's so beautiful to see how you can tie up things where Paul, when he arrives there, He's looking for a place to pray, and he, he knows that there down by the river, interestingly, there didn't seem to be a synagogue there, which means there were not enough Jews there for them to have a synagogue. But he goes down to the river to find a place of prayer, and who does he meet there? Lydia. Okay, Lydia is, is the most prominent convert who is spoken about in Acts, and then after that, the jailer after they're thrown in jail for disrupting the peace and the jailer and his whole family and Lydia and her whole family become Christians. And um, it's just wonderful to see how this was such an incredibly dear church to Paul. Because when you read in chapter 1 from in verse 3, Paul says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Can you see why he has so much joy? Because they have they partners with him in spreading the gospel. He goes on in verse 7 to say, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of God's good news. See, it's already coming out, the gospel, the gospel. Doesn't matter where Paul was, he even saw being in prison as an advantage to spreading the gospel. He was in Caesar's household and he shared the gospel with everyone he could somewhere there in Caesar's household. But again in verse 8 he says, God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. You know, and he, he starts off really with just pouring out these expressions of love and of deep joy that he has over this church because they are partners with him in the gospel. He feels so united with them. He feels so joyful about them. But, you know, Paul was always very aware that Satan is never happy when there is unity. Because unity, at the kind of loving unity that, is, in, that is, is possible and we should have in Christ Jesus, is something that is a powerful message to the world. Where if you look at the world, how divided is the world you know, Jesus, when he was um, speaking, remember he was in speaking about the kingdom, you know, he said, what will happen to a kingdom that is divided? It will be destroyed. 
And so Satan knows that if he can in some way get in and start dividing God's kingdom in whatever way he can find possible, that it will lead to a self-destruct of God's mission and God's purpose of calling people to salvation. You know, and so we can't forget that when we, um, when we, when we speak about unity, that it is always, always about the work that God is doing on this earth and that what he wants us to partner in. And so, you know, we're just going to look at a few things that, that help us to see how Paul, because he had such a deep love for these Christians, how much he urged them to kind of like look out for certain things, to be aware of ways that, um, that Satan would be able to divide them. You know, in um, chapter 1, still in chapter 1, verse 27, it's there where, where Paul says, and I am reading from the NLT at the moment, he says, above all, and whenever you hear those words, above all, we always know it's like, you know, really, really take note of this. This is, this is super important. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Okay, now, uh, these people knew all about being citizens of Rome and the advantages that came with being a Roman citizen. We know Paul even appeals to this when they beat him up there in Philippi. He's, you know, he's, the guys have to come back to him and actually apologize to him because they didn't realize he was a Roman citizen because Roman citizens cannot be treated in that way. So there were advantages to being a Roman citizens. Um, and Philippi, we've spoken about this many times, it was a colony. And a lot of um, soldiers who retired would actually go and live there and they would bring the Roman life to that area. But Paul is really saying to them, above all, you guys live as citizens of heaven. This is more important than your citizenship of Rome. And he says, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Can you see there again? It's all about the gospel, the good news about Christ. He says, then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, the gospel. Can you see unity, standing together, one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the gospel? this truth that needed to be gotten out to the whole world. Okay, so um, in Philippians 2, we can, we can go on to this. This is a passage that I know all of you know really, really well. But seeing it within this context of unity and the power of the gospel makes us realize why Paul was, was so strong on Christians getting what it meant to be a citizen of heaven. In um, verse 2 of Philippians 2, he says, Paul says, okay, let, let me read verse 1 as well, because it kind of gives a little bit of context. He says, and, and we can think about this for ourselves. So, so, hey guys, you guys out there, do you find any encouragement from belonging to Christ? 
Do you? Do you find encouragement from belonging to Christ? Isn't there a security and a, a wonder and a, and a sureness that comes from simply knowing that you belong to Jesus? You belong to him. Okay, that's encouraging. Any comfort from his love? When you really sit and you think about the love that Jesus has for you, how he displayed that love for you, how he poured out his life for you, does that not comfort you, especially when you're feeling in a tough space or you're feeling unloved or you're feeling you know, like life is really hard? That is comforting. Any fellowship together in the Spirit? You know, do you guys experience any fellowship together in the Spirit? You know, we experience, um, whenever we come together, whether we're praying, whether we're having a deep time, I saw Bazi and Sibu having a wonderful time of close fellowship yesterday. <laughs> they were at Savages while I was at Savages with, with Marissa and we spied them across the way. But it was so wonderful to see that. You know, they were really, I could see how much they were enjoying their time together. We, we had to break it to go and say hi to them. But, <laughs> but you know, what, whenever we, we're together like that, you know, whether we are singing, whether we're praying, whether we're hanging out, whether we're having discipling times, that is, is an incredible fellowship that is in this one spirit that we have. And that is precious. That is precious. I really feel like I was thinking about this, and I haven't thought about this in a long time. But I remember this so clearly, and probably some of you can relate, is when I would come to church uh, in those days when Neil was not a Christian and life was hard. And honestly, when I was with my brothers and sisters in church, I used to think this is a taste of heaven. I think Nats can relate to feeling that way as well. Akona, you know, when things are hard out there at home and you come amongst your brothers and sisters... It is, it is like God just gives us this taste. It's just, uh, it's just something that we get to taste. And I think we forget that. I think we really forget this amazing fellowship, this oneness that we have because of this, this spirit. Um, he goes on to say, are your hearts tender and compassionate? You know, we can feel tenderness. And we can feel compassion for people and for others who are going through a hard time. And that is good. But then Paul goes on to say, Then, make me truly happy. These guys, come on, make, make me truly happy. And what is it about? By agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. And what is the working together he's speaking about for the gospel? It's always the gospel. Can you see, though, how this unity is about being wholeheartedly with one another? Because you know what? It's not about the little things that we disagree on. We're always going to disagree on little things. You know, Neil and I disagree on tons of stuff. But you know what? We are partners in the gospel, and that supersedes everything. I'm not saying none of these things are important, okay? But the gospel has to supersede everything else. 
And that's why we can still love one another. It's why we can still work together with one mind and one purpose. Paul then goes on to expand on this, obviously by looking at Jesus. And this is the passage that we know so well. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can go and read it. But he says to us, he's obviously speaking to us as he was to the Philippians, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must. He's saying that that's the only way this kind of unity is going to work. If you, if every one of us has the same attitude as Jesus Christ. And the things that really stood out for me, you know, you can read it, but he says, you know, Jesus Christ, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. And he humbled himself in obedience to God. He humbled himself in obedience to God. And there's just something I want to speak about quickly with this because a very dear sister of color who I spent time with very recently highlighted for me that these kinds of passages where we we read about, um, you know, Jesus and and how, you know, he, he gave up his divine privileges, how he humbled himself, how he became a slave, you know, the humility, that... Depending on your background, whether you came from a background where you were repressed, where you experienced a a forced humbling, where you experienced um, not having rights, that you can read these kinds of passages in a very different way to how someone else like myself, who had privilege, who really never experienced anyone enforcing me to humble myself and to be less than, etc. And, you know, know, that was so helpful for me that she was sharing with me and expressing this because it made me realize again that even in in this, for us to be united and to be one, we have to hear those stories from one another. I think that's why these, the cultural conversations that we began and that we certainly would love to continue with next year, we need those times so that we can even unpack some of these scriptures and hear, how do you experience that? How do you hear that? And we can learn from each other. But I think that the reality is, though, that it really doesn't matter what our background was. Jesus is the one who we are wanting to imitate. And so, you know, sometimes that, that um, I want to say that that humbling in, in, to, to create unity can look different for us, depending on our background. And I'm going to speak about that a little more as I go into, into the rest of the, the lesson. Um, but in verse 12 of chapter 2 still, Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I know for me, I used to always read this verse as you, Nolene. You need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, you've begun this journey of this life of following Jesus. Now, come on, you know, work it out. And yes, God is working in you. But as I've read this in the light of Paul's overall message to the church, I think this is about unity. I think what Paul is, sa- what Paul is saying to these guys is, guys, okay, here we go, you've obeyed me, you know, you, you are a group that is, that is united, you're loving, you all these things, you know, you're keeping the gospel, you know, you're getting out there. But he says, guys, continue to work it out amongst you. It's God who's working amongst you to what? Fulfill his good purpose. And what is that good purpose? The gospel. The gospel. Everything comes back to that. Because right after that, verse 13, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation... Then you will shine among them, amongst this crooked and depraved, warped generation. You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You see, Paul understood that these communities of believers who were living this communal life, working out their unity and their love, they were modeling the Christ life for those who were looking on. And so he knew how important unity was and how disruptive and destructive disunity would be to the work of God. Okay, always about the work of God. One of the things he highlights very specifically in chapter 3, in verse 2, he says to these guys, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Okay. Now, um, Philippi was primarily, the church would have been primarily Gentile, okay, which of course Gentiles don't circumcise. But there were the Judaizers, and they specifically would try to get in and would try to persuade these Gentiles that you're not really saved. You're not really part of God's people if you haven't been circumcised. And this is where Paul was very strong. He was not afraid to call out false teaching, to call out anything that had danger of disrupting, of disunifying, of causing a hindrance to the work of God in spreading the gospel. There was real danger that obviously there would be this division between Jews and and Gentiles and that would be devastating to um, the gospel, Christ, because Christ was everything about bringing together those who had been separate. So Paul stood very strongly in the face of this and he expected them to do the same because he says, watch out. 
Um, in verse 15, um, he, he sort of talks then a whole lot about himself after in between this, you know, looking at himself and what he really considers um, obviously a value. And you can go and read that. But in verse 15, he says, Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. So again, he expects those who are spiritually mature to agree with one another on these things and to take a stand together on whatever is causing this, um, you know, this false teaching, with anything that can come in to really harm the unity of this church. And then he says, though, if you disagree on some point, so he acknowledges that sometimes we can disagree on some point, but he says, God will make it plain to you. God will make it plain to you. God will show you. You know, and I think for me that's just a, something as well is, you know, I want to make sure that, that I, where I disagree on something, that I go back to God. And I, obviously we have the scriptures, but we have the Spirit of God with the scriptures to help us to discern when there maybe are things that we disagree on. But that should never prevent the message of the gospel, you know. Because in verse 16 he says, But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Paul says we're not going back to that, you know. Uh, The gospel has brought us here. We have freedom in Christ. We're not going back to that. So we hold on. He was very passionate about the truth of the gospel message and he expected the the Philippians to be unified on important doctrine and not to be swayed. Okay, so I just want to finish off by looking at a real situation in Philippi. Okay, we can think these guys, they seem to be totally awesome and without trouble. And I think Maybe Paul is doing this for a very good reason because he's trying to help these guys to understand that, yes, there are always going to be ways that disunity um, can be sown amongst you, but you need to be wide awake. You need to realize that the gospel is what is really important. So in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, however you pronounce that, please, Please, listen to what he says, because you belong to the Lord, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. The NIV says, be of the same mind. So he's saying, sort this out. You guys, you, 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 you ladies, you both belong to the Lord. And then he says, and I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. Paul has a really soft spot for these two sisters because they clearly worked hard with him in bringing the gospel. Come on, ladies. We bring the gospel. You know, Paul loved them. Now, we don't know who this true partner is. Um, One of the other versions, I think the Greek word for this is syzygis. They think, oh, maybe it's a guy called Syzygis. I think maybe it was even Epaphroditus. He was actually carrying this letter. He was from the Philippians. He had been sent by the Philippians to Paul to take a gift to him of money to help support him. And then he got so sick there and they heard and were so upset. And then, But he sent him back. Maybe it was him. But we actually don't know. But I think what, what we do see is that Paul is saying that 
sometimes we need to help each other to ensure that there are not disagreements. We need to help each other to be of one mind. We need to help, and I think even Paul is doing this when he says to them, because you belong to the Lord, he's saying, sisters, the gospel is more important. You belong to the Lord, so you need to sort this out. This can't be something, something that is going to cause strife in the church, because clearly these would have been women who were known. And this could have led to some people, you know, maybe siding or whatever with them. We don't know what, even what they were disagreeing on. Um, but Paul, again, is, is so clear that this can't be left. There is danger. Whenever these kinds of things happen, that there can be a festering. A festering can happen, and that can lead to harming the church, you know. And again, I think it's always out of love and concern. And I know sometimes we can feel like, well, you know, it's actually none of my business. It's really not my business or, you know what, I don't want to get involved. Um, I, I, I just don't feel like, you know, you kind of see stuff that's happening, but it's like, nah, not me. Someone else can do it. But I, I think, you know, Paul is saying, you need, I think it's a teaching for the church because remember this would be read to the church. You guys need to be, you need to be concerned for one another. You need to ensure that these things are sorted out. So I think, you know, that's just some things that I really noticed as I went through this, that Paul always, it was always, always, unity was always about the gospel and this gospel of love, which this people, people, this group, were meant to um, embody as they lived life. And I think it's the same for us. It is no different. We embody that same message, and so the message is equally um, profound for us as well. Thanks. Amen. I'm going to read from Luke 22, from verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, saying This cup is poured out for you, Sorry, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You know, when, when the disciples listened to this and they heard Jesus speaking like this, they would have had memories of something that's written in Exodus 24. Okay, especially what Jesus has said here. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Um, Exodus 24 um, I'm going to take up the reading after, after Moses has you know, gone up the mountain and received the commands from God and he comes back. We will see that he goes back up the mountain with a group of people. Let me read from verse 7. Exodus 24, 4, verse 7. Then he, that's Moses, 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so Jesus is conjuring up this memory of the blood of the covenant and how Moses took the blood and, and he sprinkled it and he said, This is the blood of the covenant. And then Jesus said, This is the, this is my blood of the new covenant. And it's a teaching. It is a word from God. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarity, you know, between Moses and Jesus, just bringing the law. Obviously, the new covenant is different to the old, but it's fulfilled. So Jesus, you know, in the Gospels, we have all these echoes of the Old Testament, and this, this would have been a very, very strong echo for them. They also knew what came next. Okay, so let's continue reading. Then Moses and Aaron, um, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They went up the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is an amazing picture. I wonder what this looked like. Um, you know, and God is, God's just amazing. He had communed with Moses and he allowed Moses to be with him. Then he says, come on, bring the family, you know, bring the people up. Um, and they commune with God. They're in his presence to a point. It's a limited presence. And it seems like, you know, above them, there's like this, almost like this glass, quartz. And they look up and they can see God's massive feet, I guess, you know, standing there. So they can see God, but they're not fully in his presence. And they ate and drank. So Jesus says, this is a new covenant. Let's eat and drink. You are in the full presence of God. Now, you know, and this is going to be possible for all time because of the blood of my covenant. It is a unifying event. Um, God, God brought up, you know, representatives of, of his family, the 70 elders and you know, Moses and the two others, and they ate together. You know, there's something special about eating together. It's a picture throughout the Bible of just being God's family and, and being united. So that is what Jesus is reshaping in a sense you know, at, the, at the Passover. Um, you know, this is the blood of the new covenant. You know, Jesus, the gospel, you know, that brought about the new gospel that Nolene spoke about such a lot. And so when we take communion, I think what I've learned from this, and quite honestly, I've not fully appreciated this. Um, communion is meant to be a unifying event. Uh, communion is meant to be a community event. It's something we do together. And it is a time to remember Jesus and the, the oneness and the unity that we have in him. Um, it is a time um, to celebrate, you know, being God's family and eating together. Now, I, um, it's a pity, my view, it's a pity that we don't have a meal every Sunday. Um, and I'm not at all saying we should like ordering pizza, you know, for communion. There's still a, maybe we should. No, amen. Don't listen. But, and, and there, there, there is still an, you know, there is still an important formal part. It's not just a meal. It is a special meal to remember Jesus. Um, but I just encourage us, you know, to the best of our ability as we go to the back, 
Um, look around at your brothers and sisters. Be grateful. Uh, be grateful for the oneness that God has given us, the unity. And um, even imagine what it was like for this group of Israelites walking up the mountain and seeing God, being with God, and eating together. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah.